I want you to imagine for a moment that you are a judge. You can imagine you've got a little gavel and you're behind a bench if you want to, but you are in charge of, of judging over a particular city. Anything that happens in that city, it's up to you to decide who was right, who was wrong, and what the punishment should be. Some of you like this idea of the power that you'll have in that position, but we're just imagining for a minute. I'm going to share this story with you, and then you get to decide who was right, who was wrong. That part's fairly obvious, but I want you to think about what you think the punishment should be. You ready? There were two men. One was really, really rich. And he was a farmer, so he had lots of land, he had cattle, he had flocks. And he had a neighbor nearby who was really, really poor, who couldn't afford any of his own cattle or flocks, had very little. But he saved up and he bought one little lamb. He loved this little lamb. It became like the family pet. More than a pet, it became a child. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about when a pet feels like one of your children. This pet, this little lamb, used to even eat what he would eat. He would give it some of his food. He would even let it drink from his cup. And then the lamb would cuddle up in his lap to go to sleep, like one of his own children. One day, the rich man had a guest, a traveler that was coming through, and it was expected that the rich man would provide a meal for the traveler. But he didn't want to use his own sheep or his own cattle to provide this meal. So he stole the little lamb from his neighbor. And he took it, and he prepared it as a feast for this traveler. Is anybody angry? Okay, you get to decide now. You're the judge. Who's right, who's wrong? That part should be fairly obvious. Raise your hand if you think the poor man is in the wrong here. Okay, raise your hand if you think the rich man was in the wrong here. Okay. We're on the right track. <laughs> so now you decide what's the punishment that should be handed down to this man for what he's done. I'll give you a few seconds. If you came with somebody, I want you to turn and talk to them about what you think the punishment should be. If you're uncomfortable talking with people, I understand. Just think about it uh, by yourself. But let's think about what do you think the punishment should be for this person. David is one of the greatest characters in the Bible. He's got a lot of really cool stories. He's a shepherd. He slays the mighty giant. He runs for his life from Saul when Saul gets angry. There's some really cool stories there. Ultimately, he becomes this 
great king over Israel. He's even nicknamed a man after God's own heart. For the most part, he ruled with wisdom and power and compassion and had great success. One of the jobs of the king was to protect the weak and the vulnerable in their kingdom. And so the king was the judge. The king was the person who decided who is right, who is wrong, and who should be punished when situations arose. And so it was common for people to bring stories to the king about something that's happened in the kingdom. And then for the king to have a judgment and say, this is the punishment, this is what should happen. David hears this story, and in his anger, David responds by saying, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. Some of you animal lovers here in the sanctuary are thinking, Amen! Being the great king that David was, he knows what the proper punishment is for this crime. And so he pronounces judgment on the rich man, declaring that he must pay back the poor man fourfold. This punishment is consistent with the laws uh, in Exodus that are passed down. In Exodus chapter 22, verse 1, it says, When someone steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, the thief shall pay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. So King's, King David's judgment that the rich man should pay back the poor man fourfold is just and right. It's in line with their laws. So it's been declared over the rich man that he was in the wrong and that he must be punished. All that's left is for it to be revealed who the rich man is so he can be made to carry out his punishment. And that's where this story takes a turn. There's a plot twist. The prophet Nathan, who had told David this story, looks at him, and just like Marilyn was doing with the kids, I believe he was pointing at him and emphatically saying, you are the man. Not in the way guys do sometimes when someone does something cool and they say, hey, you're the man. Not like that. There's a different tone in his voice. You are the man. Let's hear from 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 7 through 12. And this is Nathan speaking to David right after he tells him this story. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I rescued you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your bosom, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, 
For you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, I will raise up trouble against you from within your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this very son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. You know that sinking feeling you get in your stomach when you realize maybe I did something wrong here? You have to think that that was multiplied for David. He was the king. He was the man after God's own heart. He had just expressed outrage at this story. He comes to find out it's a parable about his own life. The prophet Nathan was confronting him because he had stolen the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba, and he had had Uriah killed in battle. God points out how much David already had, just like the rich man in the story, and yet it wasn't enough for him. The reader of 2 Samuel doesn't hear this story in a vacuum the way we just did. There's context to it. And so the reader gets clued into the fact that this is a parable long before David realizes it. So when you read this section of 2 Samuel, as a reader, you get to see this trap that's being laid for him. And you see him walk right into it. There are clues along the way of what is happening. The first clue is the fact that right before Nathan comes and tells David this story about the two men, we read, When the wife of Uriah heard that her husband was dead, she made lamentation for him. When the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. That's right before Nathan comes and tells this story. And so, if we're reading it in the context, we see what's happening. We see what David has just done and that the Lord is angry about it. David's actions with Uriah and Uriah's wife Bathsheba, who he stole like the lamb, are fresh in the reader's mind when we get to that interaction with Nathan. But there's also clues within the story itself that this is actually a parable. Clues that David could have picked up on, but didn't. And this is important, and also pretty cool if you're a Bible nerd. Take a look at these words used to describe the lamb in verse 3. But the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought, he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his meager fare and drink from his cup and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Eat, drink, and lie. The specific things that were told about this little lamb. Why is that important? Just a chapter earlier, listen to this story about Uriah. When David was trying to manipulate him, David said to Uriah, You have just come from a journey, 
Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah remain in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day. On the next day, David invited him to eat and drink in his presence and made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord. But he did not go down to his house. And so in the chapter previous to this, we're told about this story with Uriah. And the three things we're told twice is about him eating and drinking and where he's lying down. And then in the very next chapter, those same three words are used when talking about this lamb. And so to the reader, if you're reading in, in the Hebrew, when you got to this story Nathan's telling, you see the connection between this lamb and Uriah. There are clues being given, even within the parable itself. And this may seem like a pretty insignificant thing to point out. I almost didn't include this observation in the sermon this morning. And just as a, uh, something to let you know, a lot of times when we're researching sermons, you find things like this that really don't have much of a point to what you're saying. So they get, they get kind of cut out. That almost happened here. But I actually think this is pretty important. This little observation. The author is providing clues to point out that this parable is about David's sin. The parable itself contains these clues to David, that it's about his own sin. Yet despite these clues, despite how obvious it is to all of us when we hear this story, he is outraged. He's outraged at this anonymous rich man. Yet he is completely blind to his own sin. Despite there being hints, it was much easier for David to see the sin in this story when it was told as if it was someone else's. This is often the case. Too often, we can be quick to see the faults in the actions of others and fail to see where we ourselves have fallen short. Too often we see the sins of others, but ignore our own. Actually, this is common behavior for humans. It goes back to the garden. When Adam and Eve are confronted, Adam points to Eve, says it's her fault. And Eve points her finger at the serpent and says it's the serpent's fault goes all the way back to the garden. But it's also found in the New Testament as well. Look at these words of Jesus nestled into the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. Jesus says this, Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your neighbor, let me take the speck out of your eye while the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite! 
First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. This is a truth that spans both the Old and the New Testament. Certainly, it's still a part of who we are as people, as humans today. But thankfully, David doesn't just provide us with an example of how humans can be blind to their own sin. He also shows us the proper way to deal with it when it is revealed to us. Because when confronted with his sin, David immediately confesses. There's no trying to justify it. There's no trying to deny it. As soon as it is revealed to him, David immediately confesses. Verse 13 is David's first response after Nathan calls him out. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. I'm convinced that from time to time, we need to hear the words of Nathan. The words that Nathan said to David when he looked at him and he said, You, you are the man. You are the woman. You are the one who has sinned against the Lord. Perhaps you or I have a plank in our eyes. But we're too focused on the sins of others to see it. The proper response is to join in with David and confess, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. We're going to have just a few moments of silent reflection. I'm going to invite Rachel to play a little bit during that time. But as we do, I want to invite you to ask the Holy Spirit to show you, to show you where you have sin in your life. But don't assume you already know. David was blind to his sin, even when there were clues. Perhaps I'm blind to my own sin as well. We're going to let two psalms be our prayer book during this time of reflection. We're going to use them during this time to confess. Both of these psalms are attributed to David. The first is a prayer asking God to search our hearts. I'll invite you to read this with me as we invite God to search us and to show us where we have fallen short. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I invite you now to spend a few moments reflecting and inviting the Holy Spirit to lead you into a time of confession.
invite you to use those two verses from Psalm 139 throughout this week. Maybe first thing in the morning or last thing at night. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. After David's confession that he had sinned against the Lord, the prophet Nathan responds by saying, Now the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. In response to your confession today, hear this declaration of the gospel from the prophet Nathan. Now the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Our responsive act of praise earlier in the service was Psalm 51. It's a psalm of David written after he confronts his own sinfulness. We're going to close by using this psalm to invite the Lord to create a new heart in us. Let's make these words our prayer this morning. I'll read the first part and then I'll invite you to join me for verses 10 through 12. This is Psalm 51. Let's make it our prayer together. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. Indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner when my mother conceived me. But you desire truth in the inward being. Therefore, teach me wisdom in my secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. And now join me for verses 10 through 12. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain in me a willing spirit. The message that we need to hear after a time of confessing our own sins uh, is that Jesus has paid it all. So let's stand and proclaim that over each other all the sins that have just been confessed, that Jesus has paid it all.